Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by ProTranscript.com. Today, my guest is Andy Zodin, who's been on the show before, and we have a great conversation about cooperative hitting and how it can help improve your tennis game. Real quickly, before we get to that, I want to remind you guys about the next upcoming Essential Tennis Clinic. It's going to be in Fremont, Nebraska, which is nearby to Omaha, Nebraska. For complete information, please visit EssentialTennis.com slash clinics. And at this point, we're going to need some more, some more signups for it to go. So please check it out. And if you're interested at all in learning from myself in a, a live tennis instructional environment on the courts for a full weekend, definitely check it out or send an email to me at ian at essentialtennis.com. All right, let's get down to business. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest on today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is Andy Zodin. Andy is the host of In the Tennis Zone, which is a tennis radio show in Colorado, and you can also hear that as a podcast on the iTunes Music Store. Andy, welcome back to the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thanks a lot, Ian. Always good to be with you. I appreciate it. You bet. Uh, well, to start off, why don't you tell people briefly about your your show, and I know that the third season is set to kick off soon, uh, on the 14th, correct? Yeah, we start on Valentine's Day, and what we try to do, Ian, as you know, is we, we try to blend tennis... Um, at both the local levels from a juniors and adult standpoint with the game. We've had lots of high-profile guests uh, over the course of the first two seasons, including Rod Laver and Billie Jean King and Brad Gilbert and Darren Kitt and Gimmelstaub, the Bryan brothers, all kinds of really exciting guests. But we also try to make sure that we, we recognize some of the junior and adult players, as I say, at the local level. Uh, that work very hard at helping us grow our sport and and are you know worthy and deserving of that recognition, but don't always get it. So we try to do that. Awesome. Well, it's a great show, and I, I definitely Thank recommend you. that my my listeners go check it out. And you have, uh, I was just looking at it on iTunes. You have something like two hundred episodes <laughs> up on iTunes, which is awesome. Well, I think those are probably two hundred different segments we've done. We've actually done 64 shows. It's once a week okay. uh, for a 32-week season, and I think they break those off into segments. We In a two-hour show, we'll do six segments, so we do three an hour and uh, you know, try to give each segment you know, about 15 to 20 minutes so that we're able to get into uh, some good detail with the topic but not go on and on about it. Sure. Uh, so I think we've, we found a pretty, nice, uh, a pretty nice blend. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic, and I'd like to thank John M. in Texas who suggested this topic. I posted on the forums at EssentialTennis.com and asked for topic suggestions for a show with you. And and by the way, uh, Andy and myself have previously done an episode here on the podcast, and it was number 88, 
I suggest that you guys go check it out. It was a good discussion about using modern techniques that you guys often see the professional players using and whether or not they're applicable to the amateur game. So it was a, it was a good discussion. And today's is going to be as well. Here's John's question and topic that he wanted us to talk about. How about elaborating on a topic you discussed in the last podcast with Andy, cooperative tennis? Why is it important? What are the benefits? How can, rec, how can a rec player incorporate cooperative tennis into their practice routines? Can you provide examples of specific cooperative drills for ground strokes, volleys, etc.? I know you stressed co- cooperative drilling in the ET clinic in Palm Springs. And uh, John was with me in, in Palm Springs for the last clinic that I did, and we did a lot of cooperative hitting. And it's something that I personally believe in a, a great deal that, and I believe that the, the average player is not doing it enough. I think the average player goes out onto the practice court, just kind of hits a few balls without any purpose, and then plays you know a couple of sets or, or baseline games or whatever. So, so Andy, what, what, what's your take on this about cooperative hitting and the the rec- recreational level or club level player? Well, I think it's a great question, Ian. I think it's something that I I spend a tremendous amount of time, and if some of the students that I work with on a regular basis heard that question and that I was going to be the one asked to answer it, they'd probably have to laugh because of how <laughs> how much I stress that. And, and I think my main point um, to really get to the bottom line of it all is that I believe that the most productive practice sessions that you're going to have are the ones that involve great rhythm in your rallies. So, for instance, when you, as you say, go out and kind of hit balls without purpose, um, I, I don't think that you're really building a foundation of a game that's going to hold up under pressure. I think that people come out onto the, the drill court specifically, and they have no pressure whatsoever. They can just kind of flail away and go for what they want and not have any consequence to whether the ball goes in or out. And it's good to be able to work on aggressive tactics as well, but I think we forsake the importance of the rhythm in the rallies. If you go to the U.S. Open and you go back to the practice courts, I remember I used to watch Andre Agassi and Brad Gilbert hitting, and you'd see Brad at the net and Andre hitting ground strokes, and it was just boom, 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 boom. I mean, back and forth, the exact same shot. Andre hitting the same forehand, Brad hitting the same volley, and there was nothing aggressive. I mean, obviously, don't get me wrong, Andre was hitting the ball, and he had, but it was a very nice rhythm. If you watched Muhammad Ali, you know, working out in the gym, you'd see him hitting the speed bag. Well, he's not going to go into or into the ring and just beat on somebody's forehead like he would a speed bag, but he was working on the rhythm and, and the speed of his hands in a way that wasn't necessarily what he would be doing competitively. You know, people say to me, well, we do, you know, we don't do this in a match. And I say, well, you know, football players don't run through tires in a game, but they do it as they prepare to become better football players and work on the skills that make them a better player. I look at, at what you're asking players to do as the foundation of their game. And if you want to build a good foundation to your house, you know, you got to you got to pour a nice, uh, you know, three foot of, of, of concrete slab. You can't just go two inches and go, okay, let's build the house. That thing's going to fall apart. And that's the way your game operates. If you don't have the type of game that's going to hold up under pressure, you know, one of the best compliments I ever got as a player was when I was hitting with Tommy Ho who was a great tour player, and I could never stay on the, on the singles court with Tommy, but I could go out and work with him and, and at least hit enough balls back to make it a good practice session for him. And he'd say to me afterwards, you know, I'd apologize. Jesus, Tommy, you know, I, I can't really, 
you know, stay on the court with you in a set of singles. And he'd say, no, but you're solid. And the ball comes back pretty much the same way every time. And I would kind of pump my fist to myself like, wow, that's a huge compliment from a guy like that to even say, you know, you hit a nice solid ball. And I've always taken a lot of pride in that. And I think that players hold up over a period of time if they get out there and they work on the rhythm drills that make them consistent and make them steady. And then they gain the confidence to do more and more as that becomes part of their game. You said a lot of great stuff in there. And let's go ahead and start to break this down a little bit. And the, the first thing I'd like to talk about is a very common excuse or a complaint that I get from my students when when trying to implement drills like this that are cooperative and steady and, and trying to... I, I like that you use the word rhythm to describe these drills. But oftentimes I hear the complaints, but why why am I practicing hitting back to somebody? This doesn't make any sense. What happens when I go into a match and 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 I've been practicing all this time hitting to to a person. I, I'm just going to do that in a match, then, aren't I? What, what's your, your your response to that? And you kind of already did answer it a little bit. And I, I like the analogies you gave about uh, football players and, and boxers, etc., doing things that aren't necessarily what you do during competition, but they just help to lay a groundwork. Um, and maybe I just answered the question. <laughs> Sorry. But well, go, no, go actually, ahead. if you if you want to have a complete practice regimen. You have to go out and do the things that we're talking about right now, and you've got to go out and have those drills where you've got, let's say, two volleyers at the net and two ground strokers at the baseline, and mm-hmm. maybe you're having the, the volleyers track the ball a little bit and move side to side and, and stay in the formation, and their goal is to not let anything through. They're not trying to attack the net. They're trying to defend the net. You know, when you watch the Bryan brothers play doubles, you watch two guys moving beautifully, seamlessly together, and covering the court to where it's almost like two rotating soccer goalies because every ball that's struck that comes to them isn't necessarily going to put them in position to do something aggressive with that ball. Sometimes it's just a matter of being a crisp, solid volleyer and making the ground strokers hit four or five or six balls. A lot of times the players that you work with are going to go out and play against an opponent that if you give that person enough rope with which to hang themselves, inevitably they will. But you can't just go to that game if you haven't practiced it. You can't flip the switch and go, well, normally I play really aggressively, and that's all I ever do. But these guys are overly aggressive, and if we can just play steady, then we can get them to make a bunch of errors. Let's just flip the switch, even though we haven't practiced doing that. It's not going to happen. So what you have to do is you have to go out and you have to practice the drills where you go, okay, I'm going to make sure that today when I'm playing the net, I'm going to be the most crisp, solid, error-free volleyer that I can be, and that's going to be my strategy with which to win. Now, it's not your entire strategy, and then you have to go out and you have to apply what you're using in a competitive setting. So if, if the players that you're working with are only coming out onto your court and onto the drill court or the lesson court to try to prepare for match play, they're leaving a lot on the table because if they're not going out and setting up matches with their friends and going out and playing practice sets, and then going ahead and being a little bit more aggressive and using competitive tactics, then I think that they're not getting the whole picture of what it takes to become a complete player. But if all you're worried about is every time you're on the tennis court hitting the ball by somebody, I think you're missing a lot of what the essence of the sport is, which is just that feeling of just a beautiful long rally. You know, guy goes out and hits with his wife in the park on a Sunday. You know, that's they're, they're playing tennis. They're not playing against each other. They're practicing together. And there's sort of a beautiful simplicity to that that I think a lot of people miss out on. If the only thing they're out on the tennis court to go out and do is make it a, make it a blood and guts affair 
I think they miss a lot of what you know the essence of the sport has to offer in terms of a very peaceful game and something that you can kind of go out and get some nice exercise with and have it you know be something that's not necessarily you know all stressed out and and, and turning it you know into into <laughs> you know knots. And yeah. I think that learning how to learning how to relax and to just be that steady player. And you watch some of these pros and these programs that you go to locally, and you see just the beauty and the ease of which they'll you know hit nice drop shots and you know a, you know a nice angle volley, a nice lob over the return you know over the net player's head, and you know win with finesse. You see Federer do that even at the highest level, and and there's a tremendous artistry to that. Uh, and when you learn how to play that game, it's it's a lot of fun to play, and it's also very effective. I like how you desc- how you describe that a lot, and I like the phrase. There's a you said there's a beautiful simplicity to to watching two players who are able to do this and are able to control the ball back and forth, and this is the the draw for you know your, your average player or even players like me, me or yourself who didn't you know make it as a professional player and didn't make it to the top ranks. That's the draw to going and watching professional players. And you talked about going back and watching the the practice courts. And yeah, there's just, there is something beautiful about it, (laughs) seeing two players who are just masters at controlling the ball and keeping it in play. And it might seem boring to the average player, and especially if they've only been playing for a short period of time, they just picked it up maybe a year or two ago, they're watching tennis on TV and seeing all these big flashy shots. It might seem boring, I think, to a lot of players to walk out onto the tennis court themselves and just try to be steady and consistent. But something that I try to remind my, my students of is ju- just the, the stats in, in your average tennis match show that most points end with an unforced error. And this is really across the board. Uh, there are professional matches where there's more winners than unforced errors. But even at the professional level, oftentimes there, there's more mistakes for both players than there are winning shots or, or, or winners that are hit. And and then when you go and you look at your your uh, amateur player or club player, certainly we we can't expect them to hit more winners than unforced errors. And so it, I think a lot of times it becomes managing errors. And and what better way to practice that than to have some kind of focus and uh, tr- try to build a rhythm like you were talking about, Andy. Um, anyway, I, I like to point back to the stats to to kind of show what players should be spending most of their time on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, let's um, well, let's talk. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, you use the word error management, and I was going to, you know, that was going to be my next point. Is that if you talk to the greatest golfers in the world, they all talk about at one point or another with respect to their performance in a golf tournament, golf sure. course management, right? Yeah. And I think tennis players have to have that same mindset with respect to what they're going out and doing. And you're right. I mean, every player that comes out to try to play the sport can't necessarily emulate what the top players in the world are doing. I, I mean, no offense to anybody listening, but you're just not athlete enough to do what Roger Federer is doing and what Juan Martin Del Potro is doing and Andy Murray is doing and Nadal. I mean, this is a level of athlete that is almost superhuman. And so, you know, when I was growing up, Ian, and I'm older than you, but when I was growing up, the average to slightly above average athlete could try to emulate what the top players were doing whether it was Rod Laver or, you know, Jimmy Connors and Bjorn Borg on the women's side, Chris Everett, Billie Jean King, those strokes 
gave a lot of margin for error to the average to slightly above average athlete to be able to emulate and try to play like a slightly lesser, well, a largely lesser version of those players. But nowadays, you can't just take a kid who's trying to get onto his high school team and say, okay, before you go into those tryouts, I'm going to teach you the Rafa Nadal buggy <laughs> beforehand. They go, you know, it's a, you know, let's face it, it's just not going to happen that soon. Yeah. You're going to have some kids that are going to come out, and with the technology that we've got, they're going to watch some TV and be able to emulate some of that stuff. And if you see that a kid can do it, then you, sort, you certainly you know, embrace that and give the kid the opportunity to play to the highest level. But for every player to come out on the court and to think that they're going to throw out these weapons on the court that, they, that we watched at the Australian Open recently, I think people are kidding themselves. What they should be thinking about is how can I take today's technology and and the brilliance of what Babylon and Prince and Wilson and Head and all these racket companies have done in, in, in you know putting into these frames and then try to to play that steady maybe more old fashioned game and play it at a higher level. I think they're going to have much more success with that and in large part probably much be much more injury free as well. I agree. I've got two more two more questions for you, sure. and uh, after those, I, I'd like to just go back and forth and give a couple of. John asked for some drills, some some cooperative drills. So I'd like to talk about that for a couple minutes as well. Sure. But uh, just two more questions having to do with the, um, I guess just the essence of of this uh, of this idea of being cooperative. First of all, what would you say to the player who who says to you after suggesting cooperative tennis drills? What would you say to the person who says, well, that's, that's boring. That sounds boring. I, I, I'm going to lose interest. And that just, just doesn't sound like a lot of fun to cooperate back and forth. Well, what would I say or what do I say about three times a week? <laughs> the, answer is, the answer is there's a big difference in playing against each other and practicing together. Now, when I played in, in Austin at the University of Texas on the team out there, we'd go out and we would hit cross-court forehands, cross-court backhands, one-up, one-back, and we would do you know, hours of that. And we did it in all the junior programs that I grew up in as well. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you don't like it, then you know, maybe you're too ADD or there's something that you're not getting about the importance of being able to hit the same shot over and over and over again. I mean, there is, and I'll admit it, there is a certain monotony to some of what it takes to become a great player, but I think that holds true for any sport. I mean, I think there are certain things that you have to be able to do that show how bad you want to be great because you're willing to put in the work and have everything not necessarily be, oh, this is so much fun. Well, it's not, it's not always all so much fun. <laughs> I mean, part of becoming great is putting in the work, and work isn't always fun, and it doesn't always have to be boring. It doesn't always have to be monotonous, but there are going to be elements. If two people are standing, let's say, just inside the service line doing a reflex volley drill, for 15, 20 minutes at a time, I mean, there's, there's you know, a, a period of time at which you go, can we go on to something else? But you know what? No, we can't yet. We need to make sure that we're working on our hand speed, that we're working on our hand-eye coordination, that we're getting our footwork lined up with where this ball is and trying to, you know, get the proper separation between our body and the ball. All the little things that keep you balanced, those aren't necessarily a ton of fun to work on. But if you want to be a great player, those are the things that you've just got to, you know, suck it up and, and just, you know, take it for the team, so to speak. And so I, I tell them that, you know, on a pretty regular basis. And I just say, look, there's something that you're going to enjoy from this later on that 
it's called winning, you know, and I said, it's, it's a lot more fun to win than to lose. And I'm not one of those that professes that winning is everything to me. What I look for is the enjoyment of the game, the enjoyment of the process. And if you go out and you play well and your major opponents do what they had to do to beat you and you come off the court and you lost seven, five, six, four, but you know, by God, you, you made them play and you didn't beat yourself. You're going to gain a certain level of enjoyment from that. But I think that if you only make it about having fun every single time you're on the court, you're missing out on a lot of what it takes to become a player that can perform at a pretty consistent level every time out. And I think some of these drills that you just have to say, look, do you want to be good or not? And and you have to just, you know, you, you can't necessarily just give in to the fact that a person isn't enjoying every single five-minute increment of, of their practice routine and making them realize that there is, you know, when, when again, getting back to boxing, when those boxers go out and do that road work, and they're running, you know, miles at a time with that car right behind them. I mean, do you think they're having fun doing that? <laughs> but it's a hell of a lot more fun to last and to be able to go into the later rounds of a fight and sure. not just keel over because you put in the work. So, I mean, I just have to, to make the analogy that it's a lot of fun later if you do the work now. Really good, really good answer, uh, Andy. Great stuff. And I want to ask you one more question before we talk sure. about some some drills. And what I'd like to ask you next is, I guess, what you feel is, is the right ratio. And, and you're, you're talking about having fun versus working hard. And, and maybe we can compare those to cooperative versus competitive drill situations. Maybe not all the time, because it depends on your personality, etc. But um, as far as which is fun and, and which isn't. But how would, you, how would you split up the time spent between each for, for our listeners out there who are, are you know, your club-level players, your, your recreational-level players, how would you recommend that these types of players split up their time between the hard work and the rep- repetition and the cooperation and having fun and, and more playing out points, uh, doing more competitive stuff? What do you think? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the particular group that you're dealing with. And in my case, it has to do with the fact that I'm a guy that's at high altitude. Now, remember, I'm in Denver, Colorado, where your grandmother can hit the ball hard here. It's <laughs> not a matter of, 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 of generating pace at high altitude. It's a matter of accommodating pace. So for where I am, it's probably a higher percentage of time spent with the cooperative-type drills because it, it sort of brings people back down to where they worry more about that, that pace accommodation than, than, than generating pace, and then those are the people whose performance graphs end up being a little bit more of a steady line from match to match as opposed to, well, I played an indoor match and there were no elements to compete with and I played great, but then the next week I played outdoors. It was a little windy. I couldn't see in the sun, and yet I still tried to play real aggressively and I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, and you played awful. So I think here it's a matter of maybe probably 50-50 with that, now, okay. the other thing is that who are you dealing with? I mean, if I'm out there dealing with a group of, there's a, a group of ladies that I deal with on a weekly basis. They're competitive, you know, three, five, four, oh, kind of senior players. So, you know, 55, 60 years old and nothing bores them. I mean, they go out there and they just want to play well and they're happy to do whatever it is. But then later on in the afternoon, I got a group of junior kids coming out and you know, those are the ones that want to play. Right. So, you know, we'll make them do the work and we'll do the rhythm drills and then maybe in an hour and a half or two hour workout, we'll spend the first 30 to 40 minutes making sure that we're sort of using our game like a transmission and we'll start in first gear and shift into second gear 
and make sure that we're you know hitting some good clean balls, do some reflex volleys, do some nice cross court ground stroke work, do some you know some drills where we I like to do a tracking drill with two two volleyers and and two baseliners and I'll feed from behind the volleyers and, and move the feeds around and make sure that we're working on our court positioning, making sure that we're covering the areas of the court that are the highest percentage areas of the court for our opponents to hit to, that type of thing. And then once I feel like everybody's warm and has a good sweat and they've done their work and they've, you know, they've really shown that they've, they've dialed in their focus and now we want to get into maybe some ground stroke rally points and, uh, and do some singles and some doubles, maybe some half court and then maybe play some, you know, some tiebreaker or some set work at the end, that would be a typical day, you know, of a junior program. Whereas with some of the adults, maybe I would spend a little bit more time with the cooperative stuff just because they have a tendency to have more of an appetite for that because they, they can conceptualize why the hard work of, of becoming a steadier player is going to pay off in a competitive format. Whereas the kids are just like, bring it on. Right. All right. Well, let's finish up with just a couple minutes of suggestions for John and everybody else that's listening to, to today's show. And let's give one or two suggestions for cooperative drills for the singles player and a couple for those of you listening who play mostly doubles, uh, because there's definitely some differences between the two and, and what skills should be cultivated. Um, so What's your what's your number one drill or maybe two drills that you would suggest for a singles player that are cooperatively based? I would say, you know, I like to do a, a live ball drill with, you know, a, a cross-court rally with a volleyer and a ground stroker, both in the deuce court. The volleyer is slightly inside the service line, the baseline are slightly behind the baseline, and they're just playing it out like a, you know, just a cross-court rally. And normally with one up, one back like that, you get a nice frequency of balls being hit. You get a volleyer that's working on, you know, a nice consistent volley, kind of like what I saw, you know, Brad Gilbert and Andre Agassi doing, you know, for, you know, several minutes at a time, and just having that that baseline or just go right back to that volleyer every time, and then maybe even having the volleyer move the ground stroker around a little bit and have the volleyer be in the point position that this ground stroker has got to hit this ball back to this volleyer. The volleyer is going to move the ground stroker around a little bit more and give that ground stroker a bit of a workout but the idea is to hit him a ball that he has to move for, but can definitely get to, you know, pretty easily and, and go like a minute or two at a time with that. It's a great workout and it's a great consistency drill, both for the volleyer and the ground stroker. And it's not going to take anything away from your ability to, to still kind of tweak that into an aggressive mode. You're working on your, your wind, you're working on your foot speed, you're working on your ability to, under all circumstances, put that ball back in the court, which I think is something that players lose sight of when all they're trying to do is hit the ball by somebody. I mean, you know, you can hit the ball by somebody, and it can hit the fence in the air, and you've accomplished your goal unless <laughs> you hit it by somebody. But if your goal isn't a little bit more fine-tuned with respect to a spot on the court that's in play, then it's not doing you as much good. So that's a, that's a drill that I like a lot as far as just the one-up, one-back concept. And then I think, you know, just your basic, I think there are certain things that there's just no reason to reinvent the wheel. Cross-court backhands, cross-court forehands, you know, um, just up up the line shots where one person hits up every ball cross-court, one person hits every ball up the line and moving back and forth like that. But I think whatever puts you into a situation where you're generating a consistent rhythm in that drill, I think Ian is, is, is critical because that rhythm is what's giving you that sense of 
I'm hitting the ball in the center of the strings every time. Yeah. This feels good. I feel confident. You know, I, I can hit this shot. I can hit this shot in my sleep. And sure. when you get that level of confidence um, with, with one particular stroke, or if you're lucky enough to have it happen on both sides, then that will manifest itself by way of confidence that you can take into a competitive situation and then shift it into a more, you know, strategic utilization of those skills. But if you're not working on it from the standpoint of generating rhythm first, I think you're putting the cart before the horse. And now let's finish up with give uh, please one suggestion for those doubles players out there, people who play all doubles or mostly doubles. What would you suggest for a, a good cooperative drill for them? I love that drill that I was kind of describing earlier, that tracking drill with two up and two back. Mm -hmm. And the ground strokers have to stay back. Now, I know that it's not necessarily the way you would want to play, although I think if you watch pro doubles, you'll see that there are situations where these guys just aren't invited into the net. The situation has not presented itself. And I think too often at the, let's say, I think at more at the 4 and 4-5 level, people will just come in behind anything. You know, my wife, and we and I, she and I play mixed doubles, and she'll hit a return of serve, and she's coming right at a 5-0 guy who's got a shoulder-high <laughs> volley. And I know what's coming, <laughs> you know. I see the big smile on his face, and I realize what he's going to do. And he doesn't even have to hit it hard. He can just hit any shot to, you know, kind of put her off balance. And I think people have to realize you can't just come into the net. So I think for, for, uh, for two up and two back and for those ground strokers to sort of have to feel like they've got to learn to be patient of, uh, and, and hit a good ground stroke, and the volleyers to just say, okay, all we're here to do is defend the net, not attack the net. We're here to defend the net, and there's there's a lot to that. I mean, you watch the top doubles players in the world, and you know maybe one out of every five opportunities of, of a shot to to put away comes along, as opposed to the other four out of five. I got to put this back deep in the court. Got to put this one back deep in the court. Got to put this one, you know, over there. Here these guys are. I got to put it over there. It's not a matter of always getting in there and, you know, taking the racket back like it's a machete. And you're, you know, you're going to hack away at a volley. It's keeping your hands forward. It's moving to the proper position. It's, as I said before, going to an area that is a high percentage area for your opponents to hit to, knowing where that is and why, and knowing based on where the ball is, who of the two of us should be taking that ball and making sure that we're not both standing in the same area all the time. A lot of that can be cleared up in this tracking drill where you move side to side and you cover the court and just make sure that our goal is to not let anything through. And man, does that make you a nice, solid team that will be steady, hit a lot of balls back, and then when the opportunity comes to move forward and close on a volley and put it away, your competitive instincts will, in all likelihood, take over, and you'll know to do that. What you won't always know to do is to just tone it down a little bit and to just keep it kind of in a steady mode where gosh, if these guys are going to hit the ball this hard, this often, if we can make them hit three or four balls per point, we can beat this team. We don't have to incur much risk in doing so. Well, Andy, thank you very much for being on the show and, and for talking about this this topic with me. And John M., I, I'm sure you've had your, your questions answered here today. If you have any follow-up questions or anybody else listening, if you guys have any comments or questions, please feel free to email myself or post in the forums and I can send those along to, to Andy as well. But Andy, thank you very much for your time. You, you've been a great guest. I love having you on the show because it's very easy to tell by listening to you talk that you just have a love for the game and a passion for the sport. So thanks very much for, for spending your time with me and my listeners. 
Well, it's always fun to be with you, Ian, and you ask great questions, so it makes it easy for me, and I look forward to uh, to reciprocating and having you come on in the tennis zone here in the next few weeks, so be sure and let your listeners know that we're going to do that, and we'll uh, we'll definitely have some fun, and uh, it's always uh, it's always a good time, so whenever you need me, I'd, I'd love to come on with you. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely let my listeners know when I'll be on your show, and, and I appreciate that uh, very much. Um, and in the meantime, definitely check out Andy's show. It's going to be starting in the next, uh, what is today? Today's the 8th, so less than a week. Andy's third season will be starting up. You can check that out on, uh, what's your website again, Andy? Well, if you go to uh, TennisZone, TennisZone1510.com, you can get all the archived podcasts anytime, and then uh, MileHighSports.com. Uh, my show is from 10 to 12 noon on Sundays. That's mountain time. So out on the East Coast, it would be uh, 12 to 2, milehighsports.com. You go to listen live, and you can catch it live on uh, on the stream. Awesome. All right, Andy, thanks again, and I look forward to having you back on the show in the future. As well, Ian. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. That does it for today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast, episode number 104. Thank you very much for listening to today's show. I appreciate you downloading the file and supporting Essential Tennis in that way. Next up, I want to do a shout-out to four very important people this past week that donated to Essential Tennis and some real nice donations this week. I really, really appreciate these people so much. First of all, Carl in Texas donated $120 to Essential Tennis. Carl, you're the man. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Also, Carlotta in New Jersey started a $5 a month subscription donation. Norman in California sent a $50 donation to Essential Tennis. And William in Missouri sent, oh, I'm sorry, started a $10 a month subscription donation. So Carl, Carlotta, Norman, and William, thank you to, to you for four new donators this past week. I appreciate that so much. And I want to let you guys know, I, I don't take these funds and go to Pizza Hut <laughs> or uh, you know buy myself a new TV or something. Uh, I mean, this really goes towards paying my hosting services. Uh, I have several monthly expenses that are associated with the website uh, that control all kinds of different parts of the website. And I'm always trying to come up with new ideas as well. In fact, in fact, this past week, I experimented with some new software that I just purchased that will allow me to do live video conferencing and do live video te technique and, and also uh, tactical and strategy analysis for members in the future. I, I'm working on that right now. I, I just did a test run this last week with several members of the forums so uh, these funds really do go to help improve the website. So thank you guys so much. And if this podcast has helped you improve your tennis game, please consider donating to Essential Tennis. Just go to EssentialTennis.com, and on the front page on the bottom, there's a link that says Donate. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks again, everybody. Take care, and good luck with your tennis. <laughs>